And then you have the shingle back, which is a reasonably closely related thing, but it, it looks like, I don't know how to describe like it. Like a walking pine cone. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great, that's, that's a great, great um, yeah. uh, description. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. Here's another episode that is coming from the backlog of recorded material from um, the summer into the fall. This is an interview, uh, conversation really, with Stephen Fricker and Robin Irisari uh, talking about a bioblitz that happened this fall, kind of a counterpart to the um, City Nature Challenge that takes place in the spring, or I should say the Northern Hemisphere spring, so that having a bioblitz that takes place six months or so later um, gives the folks in the Southern Hemisphere a great way to, to, to take part in a big international competitive bioblitz when, um, when things are really picking up for them down there. We hope you like this episode and all of our episodes. And if you do, please feel free, please feel obligated to tell everyone you know about how much you love the podcast. Please leave us great ratings and comments on your podcast listening app of choice. And please check out all of our wonderful sibling podcasts on the Wildlife Observer Network. Because again, the Urban Wildlife Podcast is now part of the Wildlife Observer Network family of podcasts. And last, of course, please don't hesitate to be in touch. Um, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. And of course, you can find us on Facebook. Don't be a stranger. Feel free to get in touch with your ideas and thoughts on the podcast. My name is Robin Irizarry. I am, uh, I guess I'm from the Philadelphia area, grew up in Philadelphia here, um, involved locally in a lot of the urban nature and wildlife enthusiasm that happens around the region. Uh, for my professional work, I work for the Alliance for Watershed Education, where I manage their summer fellowship program, um, but i am been involved with the Urban Wildlife Network wildlife podcast and the uh, wildlife observer network uh, for a while now great um and steven who are you what do you do yeah i'm um, Stephen fricker i'm from adelaide south australia which is um right down the bottom of the uh, the world and i i uh I'm or the top the- depending how you orient the planet <laughs> <laughs> we turn it up the other way you know? globes on the other side yeah well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I'm outnumbered here, so I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm involved in uh, a bit of citizen science work at the local university here. I, I was involved in um, developing something called Mozzie Monitors, where we use urban uh, mosquito traps and citizen science to monitor mosquitoes in, in an urban setting. Uh, and um, I also do a bit of engagement work with older Australians, uh, it, getting them involved in, um, in citizen science through iNaturalist and uh, looking at the health benefits of that uh, to do with all sorts of, all sorts of health benefits. And I, I'm sort of a project officer on that, uh, working with a, um, some people at the university. Uh, yeah, so uh, I've also been involved in a few uh, bioblitz type things in, um, in South Australia and Australia. Wonderful. You know, <clears throat> you actually have me reaching for a pen and paper so I can make a note to email you later about that health benefits thing. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll start off with, I guess, a quick introduction to what the City Nature Challenge is as the backdrop for this. 
Um, those of you who have listened to this podcast uh, might remember in the past um, us having episodes about the City Nature Challenge. This is something that um, I like to call it an international urban competitive bio blitz um, that was started by two museums out in California, the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco and the Natural, Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, where they, I think 2016 had a bet about who could get more people um, using iNaturalist in a given period of time and logging more observations and more species. Then it snowballed from there. And so Philadelphia, where we live, um, took part for the first time in 2019. Um, last year, we did it again, although it was kind of a fun, well, last year, this feels like last year. It was still this part of 2020, which is the longest year we've ever experienced. Um, and in the beginning, uh, you know, we thought we'd have another, like, bio blitz of everybody getting out in groups and having lots of great lead, you know, curated walks and stuff. Nope, it turned out we did sort of um, pandemic style, very decentralized um, and still a great experience. Uh, and so, you know, one of the challenges we've all on both ends of this call have had um, with the, the format of the City Nature Challenge is the timing. Um, and this isn't anyone's fault. I'm not like, we're not blaming the Californians for doing it this way. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit, at the end of April, it's, it is not the most um, biodiverse time of year for our, our, our city um, being a little bit northern in latitudes. And, uh, and Stephen, why don't you tell us why that's not so great if you're uh, on the other side of the planet? Yeah, um, well... For Australia in particular, I think it's it's, it's getting quite cold, but also the uh, the city nature challenges tended to be on that last weekend in April, which I don't know how to explain this to you guys, but uh, it's there's something called Anzac Day, which is a, a holiday, it's a long weekend, and Anzac Day Anzac is a, a term we use for the Australian and New Zealand armed forces, so it's it's a throwback to World War Two, so it's a bit like uh, I, I don't know if you have anything. Similar a military type thing and um everyone goes out and goes camping and um, they have a bit of a march and it's to <clears throat> to remember <clears throat> i suppose the people that uh, that served in world war one and yeah world it's war. like memorial day we have for us yeah 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 and um <clears throat> and because of that, it, it, it hits over that weekend there's a lot of people they, they tend to go out camping so uh, they're not necessarily in a city uh, they tend to go out fishing and there's also an early early morning parade. So they're not thinking about doing something different. Everyone's got this. There's a lot of tradition around it, um, cricket matches and, and whatever else. So it's not a particularly good time and, and not really a, the best time to, to do a biodiversity challenge because it's heading into the cold weather. There's, there's few insects around and uh, not many things are flowering. So it, it, it's a bit, of a bit of a challenge for us. And then with COVID as well. Um, that was also a challenge. It was the first year that we did uh, the City Nature Challenge in Australia uh, this year. Again, it seems like last year, but <laughs> down here as well. Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it was a particularly challenging challenging uh, effort to get it up and running. So I, I'll, just, I'll just point you in a slightly different direction for the conversation. Um, I'm, you might not know this about me, but I'm kind of a reptile and amphibian guy. Um, yeah. And I... Uh, the and and people often think of um, uh, of Australia people like up here we joke about oh it's a land where everything can kill you um, and you know you have a lot of a lot of diversity of of dangerously venomous snakes um, yeah. but 
but if you're if you're into reptiles, what you also what I know about also is that you have an incredible diversity of like of lizards, um, mm. of of just an obscene number of skinks and geckos and stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just uh, I don't know what kind of stuff do you find in Adelaide? Like you know, not many in April. Um, <laughs> it's a bit too. <laughs> But um, in my backyard, I've got uh, I've got eastern blue tongues. Yeah, I have um, like a little marbled gecko as well, southern marbled gecko, uh, and that's just in my backyard. But we don't see them that often because I have a few cats from next door, unfortunately. Uh. And in a, cats are uh, cats are problematic. They tend to eat a lot of small reptiles and and things like that. So we don't really like them too much here. Uh, well, some of us don't. Uh, yeah, but um, often we get things called shinglebacks, which are, are a large skink as well, and same family as uh, the same genus as, as uh, blue tongues. Uh, it's Tilica rugosa and Tilica skinkoides. You can look that up later. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's generally the sort of things we see down in Adelaide in, in an urban setting. Uh, there are a bunch of other little skinks as well. There's a three-toed skink, uh, and there's a, a couple of water skinks that hang around that I often see um, some of the smaller skinks in my in my yard, but I'm moving rocks around sometimes they're underneath the rock yeah but uh, late, late april is is not a particularly good time for for skinks uh you can if you'd like you know if you do lift up a few rocks you do often see a few sort of hiding and um just chilling out but um they are a lot less active and you also run the risk of running into a redback spider or, or, a, or a huntsman or a or a, or a snake so it's, it's not <laughs> <the best. laughs> i don't know man i'd be looking under those rocks I, I um, as a kid who grew up like reading books about you know fascinating lizards and snakes and stuff from around the world, the idea that you have blue tongue skinks just on a routine basis in your backyard is just absolutely delightful. Um, yeah, I like a little population. Yeah. Um, in case you don't know what these are, these are I don't know like what a uh, about a foot long, um, maybe a little less than a foot long, but but heavy body, chunky, chunky lizards yeah. with like yeah. huge jaws. Um, I think they, well, they mainly eat snails and stuff like that. Yeah, a bit of vegetation, snails and, and other invertebrates. And then you have the shingleback, which is a reasonably closely related thing, but it, it looks like, I don't know how to desc- describe like it. Like a walking pine cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great, that's, that's a great, like, great um, yeah. uh, description. And then when you walk up to them, um, they, they will open their mouth and stick their tongue out and gape at you and hiss. I had a, a, um, a PhD student in our lab from... Uh, from the US, and she was fascinated by them the first time we came in the field. She wouldn't let. I was out doing some field work, and she wouldn't leave it. <laughs> she just wanted to take photographs and and, uh, and and watch it. I'm like, we got to go, man. I've got I've got to, I've got so much going to do. Let's get out of here. That would totally be me. Yeah, shingleback. It's okay. <laughs> These are the fellas that have the the tail looks almost identical to the head. Yeah, yeah, and they're <laughs> so interesting. They're actually, an interesting species. Yeah, they, 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 they do have a, like a stubby tail, yeah. Um, and they also do, uh, mate for life as well. Mm. So they've got some really interesting um, behavioural um, uh, aspects around them as well. When you're out driving in the, in the countryside, you'll see two, uh, two of them walking uh, along the side of the road and one will be, the one in the front will be the female and the, the, the one behind will be the male that will be, be trailing the female. So it's quite, quite often you'll see them trailing and they and they're, they... They tend to mate for life as well, monogamous. Well, we all know that monogamy doesn't necessarily mean monogamy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah they're interesting species. They're, they're quite quite, uh, quite a delight to see by the road. Awesome. I they just, do get hit a lot by cars. 
I, I had to ask you about that, but now I got to stop because I could talk about that for now. Um, so what did you guys, so now let's talk about the, the Southern BioBlitz. So then, you know, what happened next in organizing when you guys were looking at this? Well, uh, I guess with you guys, you, you'd know that um, it was a bit of a challenging year this year with COVID. And uh, we were entering, I suppose in South Australia, we were quite lucky. We didn't, have, we weren't hit that hard by COVID. We managed to avoid a lot of the, um, the shutdowns, but Victoria and New South Wales, they got hit pretty hard. And we, it was looking fairly shaky for us as well. Uh, and this was the first year that there was about, there, was, there were four areas that got involved in the City Nature Challenge. So early on, we saw that there was going to be a bit of a, you know, it might be a bit difficult for us and it was going to be all new to us. So I got in contact with the other organisers and we started working fairly closely together. Um, and we decided to ditch in Australia the whole competitive aspect and try right. and work more towards more of a cooperative approach and promote the idea of a backyard bioblitz because we were very uncertain as to what was going to happen. And we wanted to try and promote this whole idea of, a, of, of the City Nature Challenge within Australia because we think it's a great idea to get people involved in, in, in looking at biodiversity and looking at nature and, and appreciating it a bit more. So fairly on, early on in the piece, I suppose, in, in March, we, we, we started thinking about the whole idea of it's of this fairly cool weather um, biblets and how that would, was going to be a bit of a bit of a, ch a challenge for us as we, that's what we've been talking about actually identifying these things like lizards and things like that so um, we, we threw it at, one of us threw it out there uh, that we maybe we will try and do something in spring so uh, that's where the whole idea came from the, this sort of networking that we did and then uh, I suppose a few weeks after the uh, the City Nature Challenge, being the four that I am, I rang up the other guys and said, let's do it. And they were all very keen. So it started off being just Australia, but um, I didn't think that was, you know, um, I thought we should open up to other people as well. So, I, you know, I, I knew a few people around the world, but in the end it, we, we decided that we were going to make it only Southern Hemisphere. And unfortunately, we, 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 I did contact with uh, contact Philadelphia early on and um, I've got some contacts up in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, but uh, the other organisers decided that they really wanted to keep it in the Southern Hemisphere, which I think has actually worked out quite well. Good. Because the way we've approached it is a bit more of a cooperative approach uh, a bit less less of a focus on on a competition and more of a focus on engaging people and not also and also not necessarily a uh, a focus on urban bio, uh, biodiversity more of a local government area biodiversity to try and involve people in more rural settings which we did get a lot of feedback in australia about people who wanted to get involved in the city nature challenge but they felt that they were out in the what we call the boondocks out in the um <laughs> yeah, out in the rural setting, out in the, in the bush, and they really wanted to um, try and highlight what, what they had to offer as far as biodiversity and get their, uh, get their communities involved. So I suppose that's where it all started from. And um, we just got in contact with a few people in, um, in South America and Africa, and we ended up with 12 countries and, um, and quite a few different areas. We're lucky enough to have a, uh, a PhD student in our, uh, in our lab from Brazil, so we have um, a, a, we had a way to overcome the uh, the language barrier with um, with, with Spanish and, and and Portuguese. Unfortunately, in Australia, we we speak English and we don't really learn a second language uh, that widely. So none of us spoke um, Portuguese or Spanish. So we we're very fortunate we had this connection where we could 
um, use this as a growth opportunity for Larissa, our, our PhD student, in the true sense of the word. Um, she uh, And she really embraced it. So we, we got a really good, strong showing in South America and we had some really good partners uh, there. Um, we made some good contacts and um, we were very blown, well, I personally and I think all of the organisers in Australia were completely blown away by the, the, the enthusiasm in the South Americans. They, they do things a little bit differently. It's a bit, bit of a culture shock. Um, but it's but it is it's just quite a pleasant culture shock. They have a different way of doing things that that I just couldn't understand. Um, but you know, it's very it, it it fits the way we do things. I guess it's a bit um I don't know, a bit more uh, collaborative than what we're probably used to. Australians are sort of fairly laid back, and they go, "Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that sounds good." And then we'll go along. But that over there, it's uh, it's a lot more collaborative. They they work very well together. And um, they were very enthusiastic. We had a few undergrads do some really good films and um, some good promotional material, which we were just uh, amazed by. I don't know if you guys have seen any of that, but um, it was astounding. So um, we had, and I'm going to look that up. Uh, how did the, what did the results look like? And I don't mean, yeah, gross numbers, but um, what cities uh, ended up turning out a lot of people, let's say, that, um, that you might not have expected before this? Yeah, I think um, Peru did really well. Um, they had a lot of casual observations, uh, which is something we want to work on. Um, but they also had a lot of interesting uh, observations with uh, young people getting involved, like some fairly young um, individuals making some pretty interesting observations, and um, including things like uh, you know a rare blue-headed parrot, as well as a couple of pot plants. So, so it was a bit of a mixed bag. So the, they did do some some interesting um, uh, observations down there. Af- Africa, of course, um, you know they they uh, Cape Town, as you know, they get very enthusiastic. Uh, which was um, if you're just listening to the stuff about the signature challenge for the first time, Cape Town, they're kind of like the it's like having an informal swimming contest, and like Michael Phelps shows up. Um, and they, <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. They didn't put much effort in this year, and they got, um, you know, they, they they joined last minute, and they got sixteen thousand observations <laughs> as compared to the second person, which got like casual rolling into the area. Sorry, just rolling yeah. into the very casually and just dropping a cool six, six, 16,000 yeah. observations. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're very enthusiastic. <laughs> Most of their organisers were out out of the country, so. Yeah, I think a lot of our guys, to be honest, we've got a couple of fairly competitive people down here and they, they were um, of a mindset of excluding South um, of Cape Town on, <laughs> or putting them in their own, their own little competition. But we won't go into that. But we, don't want, we don't want Tony to know about that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, some of the other places, we had a place in, um, in uh, Colombia. And I know Colombia is mostly in the Northern Hemisphere, but... Mm-hmm. We, we, we accepted them because they're, they're partly in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, I, I did have, um, I didn't want to exclude, there's a, a, a I've got a, um, a friend there, a PhD student, um, Jimmy, and I didn't really want to exclude her. She was pretty enthusiastic. So, um, but. Uh, Wait, what city, what city in Colombia? Julia is um, a new city, first time they joined. And that was run undergrad. Okay. Um, and they got um, about three and a half thousand observations. And they hired a bus and they went around the hills and they did public engagement and they did some films and they had drone footage of these, you know, all these undergrads in streams, all the, they had their biology um, lecturers involved. 
that I think they were the standout uh, as far as what we the message that we want to um, put out there, which is uh, engagement and getting people involved. Oh, and they did a big film where they uh, they went out on this bus and they had banners and they they went and talked to villagers and talked about biodiversity. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. We were um, completely blown away by those guys. That's um, great. Yeah, yeah. And within um, within a couple of days of joining, he did another film where uh, he had the, the mayor of the town and all these public officials um, all on film supporting the biobillets. So it was the, the, the enthusiasm and the engagement there was astounding. I'm, I'm, I, can't, um, I can't recommend those guys highly enough. Edwin from uh, Julia was awesome. Mm. Uh, all right. So yeah. I'll... I'll transition over to talking about um, Philadelphia. And so I'll, I'll say that um, we had learned about this BioBlitz um, and we're, we're always happy to jump on any BioBlitz we can. Um, and so yeah. we were in it and, and uh, it didn't work out, obviously, because you defined it as the Southern Hemisphere and that's fine. Um, but we decided, hey, there's, there's no reason we can't do our own little BioBlitz. And so, Robin, do you want to talk about our history with fall BioBlitzes and, and what we did this year? Sure. So we actually, the year we found out about the City Nature Challenge here, we were a little late in the game, so we didn't get to get Philadelphia actively involved in the official City Nature Challenge the first year, maybe two seasons ago. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, so we had decided to kind of do a dry run in the fall in the first place. So that was kind of our first attempt at a local bio blitz was in fall 2018 which went over really well. We had some organizations like our local uh, Tsukini Tsukoni Frankfurt Watershed Partnership helped to lead a, a BioBlitz in the park. That was one of the first places where we piloted a BioBlitz really using iNaturalist as the platform. And that was kind of the primer for us to get involved in the official April City Nature Challenge the next year. Um, we, you know, Philadelphia had a great turnout, great showing. I think we did really well for a, a first year participant back in 2019. 2020, of course, we had all the complications of COVID. Um, but really, you know, we were really thankful that the City Nature Challenge and these iNaturalist based bio blitzes really lend themselves extremely well to the social distancing, you know, implications of a, of a global pandemic. We had, um, a lot of environmental centers kind of scrambling to figure out like how to pivot their programs since they couldn't do things in person. And this became something that a lot of organizations were able to really um, kind of take on and leverage so that you could encourage folks to explore their own backyards um, with their mm -hmm. families without going out and having to do big group events. You could still encourage folks to participate in this really exciting activity. Um, again, just like you had mentioned, Stephen, for us, April is not quite prime season for us. We're watching the results come in in April and we're seeing South Texas just, you know, annihilating everybody else on the board with their, their biodiversity in the States here. <clears throat> Cause of course the, the spring migration has picked up, you know, there well before it reaches us here. Uh, so we definitely had interest in returning to a fall bio blitz and, and having that kind of engagement. Get a lot of people who participated these first two years who were just itching to do more. Mm -hmm. um, big shout out to our local organizers, Sam and Naveen, who have been yep. 
really pivotal in uh, putting these on, and especially in this fall when Sam really stepped up um, in helping to put information and resources out to get people excited about it. Um, I think the, the really neat thing that we were able to see as far as results go, um, you know, while some numbers, you know, in the spring the past year, we, we were able to get up to about 850 observers this year in the fall. And this was a much more casual attempt. It wasn't as, you know, as broadcast as we typically do the spring bioblitz. We had about 700, so pretty close, you know, nice. not too far off from our participants before. And we had about 8,000 observations in the fall here in the Philadelphia area with about 1,700 species tallied. The, the neatest thing, again, for us is just seeing a lot of things in bloom, our, our fall blooming species, like our asters and our goldenrod, really cranking this time of year. We see um, lots of great pollinators, uh, butterflies, just things that you can't appreciate in, the, in our spring bioblitz when stuff is still waking up. Um, in April, our wood warbler migration, late April, is just beginning. It doesn't really peak until early May here. And we had, you know, we have these beautiful, colorful wood warblers that everybody looks forward to in the spring. Um, in the fall, they're a little more tricky to ID. <laughs> they can lose a lot of that color and become, you know, more muted tones, a little more drab, but really exciting to to try and find again. And you know, I think we had a, a great turnout of warblers in the in the fall bio blitz. Um, some really great, you know, fall species. Some some really great insect insect life that we just don't have that early on in the season. Um, for us, the, you know, the number one observed species was white snake root, which is kind of infamous here in the States. It's a native plant. It's a beautiful white blooming flower that's all over the place here. It's, it's infamous for being the plant that killed Abraham Lincoln's mother, one of our presidents. Oh, okay. So because of the association with cows eating that plant and the buildup of of toxins in the milk. People used to get milk poisoning induced by this specific plant. And that was, so that's always when we're doing environmental education walks and people are like, what's this plant? We say, oh, that's, that's the plant that killed Abe Lincoln's mother. <laughs> that was our, our number one observed observe species. The second most observed species for us here, and this is a real local, you know, invasive species challenge we're going through right now is the spotted lanternfly. Um, so that was our oh, okay. that was our number. So wait a second, Stephen. You've heard of spotted lanternflies? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, I, I one of my jobs I do a few things uh, is working in biosecurity. Um, oh. I've been fascinated with the um, spotted lanternfly over in in the states. I'm a bit concerned because it doesn't seem to be as taken as much as, as seriously here. But um, yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I know all about spotted lanternfly. Okay. Yeah, I've seen quite a quite a few uh, nasty um, nasty images coming out of the states and Philadelphia, and uh, in particular, yeah, we're, we're essentially ground zero in the states here. It, you know, the first yep. ones were discovered in Berks County, just north of us. Yeah, um, and so we're we're in the. It came in real battleground here, and right now in the in the fall bioblitz, we're seeing them in their adult stage. We had them. They were again really high in the rankings in the springtime, and that was all their nymph stages where there are these small, spotted, 
honestly, they're, they're really adorable looking bugs. Everybody's like, wow, they're so beautiful. <laughs> but the implications on our, our local ecosystem is, is really rough. I know we've done former podcasts about this, so we won't go on. Yeah, I'll say real quick that these are, um, these are, these are plant hoppers native to China, basically Southeast Asia that um, spread into, into Korea uh, around 2004, I think, um, and had a big impact on grape growing. And so they have, a, they have an association with a, an invasive plant here called um, Alanthus altissima, or the tree of heaven, um, which in its own right is a real pain in the ass um, tree. And so uh, once the lanternflies got accidentally imported, um, they found plenty of their favorite host species to feed on because Alanthus is all over the place, tree of heaven. Um, and... Uh, something else they like to eat in particular is grapevines or, or feed on our grapevines. And so they, um, they've been, they can almost wipe out a hard, or a, a, a vineyard. Um, mm. And so that's, what's gotten people excited um, in the agricultural pests arena. Um, certainly in the States, it sounds like Australia too, um, where you have important wine or grape growing industries. Um, they're really worried that the lantern flies will, will reach their fields. Um, and so it's, it's funny because they don't seem to be having a huge impact on other stuff. Um, you can find a lot of them on maples and some other trees, but they don't seem to kill them or, or really hurt them too bad. What they hit are the grapevines. Um, and so in Philadelphia, it's almost like a, 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 a fever of killing lanternflies to seize the city. Um, and so people get really into squashing them in all kinds of creative ways. Yeah, I would hope for them to go into here because we have a lot of uh, prime grape growing areas like wine country. Yep. Uh, just north of the city. Actually, almost into the, you know, into the city. It's just not that far. Do you have a lot of tree of heaven, a lot of the Olympus? I don't think so. It's a tough one for us here. It's one of these things that it can grow in any crack in the concrete. It grows on windowsills, on old abandoned factories, and then you have a 20, 30-foot tree growing out of the roof of a building. It's very prolific here. Robin, how do you kill it? Uh, I mean, a lot of folks professionally when they're going after this stuff, you know, you can cut stumps. You might inject, you know, right into the, you might paint the stump with an herbicide or, or do some kind of injection like that. It's a, it's a tough plant. It's really, it suckers really aggressively. So yeah, it's I think we could do it here, but it's not, it's not that, that prolific because um, we're, we're quite arid. Sure. So I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. We have a little bit of a here, but I think it needs to be a little bit, bit more water around to, for it to take off. Yeah. I guess I was, that was, sorry, I pulled us off on a different, ta- on a tangent there. Um, no, for sure. Yeah, Robin, you want to keep going? Well, I was just, I was on the, Spotted lanternfly topic, almost as an aside, but still related to this bioblitz. You know, I think the really neat thing about getting people excited about programs like this City Nature Challenge bioblitz is, um, is you introduce people to this really accessible platform for citizen science, community science. And I think the neat thing is like there's applications where we're learning things from everyday observations that people are seeing. So take, for instance, the spotted lanternfly. Uh, we recently created an iNaturalist project specifically looking at 
predation of spotted lanternfly in the states by local and like whether native or introduced species like hey do you are people photographing them eating you know being eaten by anything you know when, when these first hit the states the word that came out was uh and they're really not palatable to birds nobody really likes to eat them you know hence they have this really bright coloration which you typically associate with stuff you know not wanting to eat it uh, lately we've been seeing more and more photos coming out of our native birds adapting to this and just starting to warm up to them so we have lots of photos of cuckoos and some of our larger flycatchers, um, some of our woodpeckers just eating spotted lantern flies. Um, so we take it as a good sign. You know, that's, we have some natural predators as our allies. Spiders are pretty non-discretionary when they're eating stuff that flies into their web, it seems. Uh, mantises, both our local native Carolina mantis, and then some of the introduced species of mantis that we have uh, seem to be really going after them um again it's it's a tough thing because their their numbers are so you know the, the spotted lancer fly are innumerable here you just see whole trees covered on a you know summer or fall evening you know late in the day late in the afternoon you can just see the skies full of them they're just drifting around um, but it's good to know that we have any kind of natural allies helping us out so when people are seeing this stuff and putting it into iNaturalist it's it's really great and helpful. We know we have some researchers um, through Penn State who are working on specifically, you know, documenting this stuff as well. I'll, I'll just make an extra exclamation point on that, that it, it, oftentimes we get the question, well, what is this data that you put into iNaturalist good for? Um, and uh, in any citizen science effort, there are limitations to how um, you can use the data in the sense that it's um, often um, not collected in a sort of a rigorously unbiased way. Um, but uh, if you're looking for just examples of stuff um, that, with a, that something exists, that, that this is a useful, um, a useful, a useful use of iNaturalist where like people are out there who are into this, they take a picture of a, of a cuckoo or a mantis eating a lantern flax. They think it's really cool. Um, and then it's, then that's data that researchers can pull from. Um, and, you know, we actually have that exact situation happening where we got this research from Penn State University. I'm drawing on a naturalist for data. Yeah. Yeah, we, we recently had a paper published here looking at um, fire response. Uh, there was a project set up uh, after the big fires. It was a couple of projects set up, but one sort of took off uh, out of the University of New South Wales. And they've recently published, I think a couple of days ago, one of the guys who's actually on the organising committee for the Great Southern Bibles is an author. And they were looking at the data uh, from that particular project uh, and, and trying to look at how, how the uh, ecosystems respond from uh, the, the large fires we had down here, which were quite substantial. Uh, and the stats out of that, I haven't actually read the paper, but apparently the, the statistical analysis was quite, quite, uh, quite interesting. Uh, our friend well, Larissa had a quick look at that. So there are some pretty interesting ways to use this data, I think, um, for yeah, looking at it from looking at invasive species and um, and species uh, distributions, changes in species distributions, it's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, you don't know what you're going to be able to use it for until you until it sort of dawns on you what you can actually use it for. Awesome. Um, I think we've got a couple minutes left in in our time for this call. Um, so we'll start with wrapping up. Uh, Robin, anything you wanted to wrap up with? No, I think we're just. 
we're excited to have the opportunity to try this out in fall and really showcase the amazing stuff that we have moving through during our during our fall fall migration up here in the states, um, Philadelphia in particular. I just encourage folks to you know download the free iNaturalist app, create an account, and start snapping photos of the stuff around them. It may seem just like a casual and significant thing for you, but like just like Billy mentioned, there's there's stuff being discovered all the time, um, you know, through this really easy to use accessible platform. Absolutely. And Stephen, yeah, I just um, I just back up what Robin was saying. There was a, a new spider species discovered in someone's backyard on a, on uh, just the other day uh, on iNaturalist. So you know. Um, you, even in your own backyard, there are people doing things like uh, setting up little projects and uh, for their own little piece of the world. And then you can uh, there are umbrella projects for that, so you can compare what other people have got around the world in their own little backyards and see how things change over time. And um, you know, it's it's a good way to sort of learn about what's going on in the world around you and uh, learn different species, learn learn your birds and uh, learn your insects. And you don't know. Uh, how that could be useful going forward, particularly with phenology and looking at the timing of, uh, of flower buds and the timing of emergence of insects. This is all important for uh, for our understanding of how biodiversity is changing over time. And I would also say, don't forget the common species because everyone's trying to go for that rare thing that, uh, that you know, no one's ever seen. And, you know, I've, I've, during our recent bibits, I've, I got a first for a, a small grasshopper, which was fantastic. But... Um, one of our most commonly uh, observed animals is, uh, is the magpie, uh, which is it's important to know about the distribution of those animals as well because they might not be here one day and we need to know about how these things change. And without that baseline data, uh, we, we can't make predictions going forward. So, yeah, uh, don't forget the common species, I would say. And if you go out for a walk, take your camera with you and take a photograph. You don't have to take 100. You could take five. So, yeah, in case your kids are with you and they get really annoyed that you keep stopping, um, which, you know, I think Robin and I both probably have experienced. <laughs> um, but, yeah, get, get as many as you can before your kids want to kill you. Um, all right. Um, with that, uh, I guess we'll wrap up the call. Um, thanks, Robin. And, Stephen, thanks especially. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking, and I always just get tickled that we're having these conversations on the other side of the world. It's a wonderful thing. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> all right. See you guys. Thanks. See you. Great speaking with you.